Okay, so we are um, recording now. Um, so we can each introduce ourselves. Um, Carmen, we might start with you. Okay, so uh, my name is Carmen Bugan. Uh, I am uh, based in uh, Long Island, New York. I'm a poet and a writer. Um, I wrote a memoir as well. And um, I'm very excited and honored to be here. Uh, my name is Rosie Lavin. I'm in the School of English at Trinity College Dublin. And uh, I'm also involved in the Centre for Resistance Studies and the Literature and Resistance series in the Trinity London Pub. My name is Bora Zapor, uh, and I'm a historian, um, historian of communism. I'm based in the School of uh, Languages, Literatures and Cultural Studies, and I'm here in my capacity as director of the Centre for Resistance Studies. So, um, thank you so much, Carmen, for joining us for this um, conversation about your work and its context, and also uh, your ideas about literature and resistance. Um, Balash, would you like to start with a kind of general question, or how should we begin? Um, sure, yeah. Um, maybe a, a general question about uh, the big themes that you explore in your work. Um, oppression, um, trauma, transgenerational trauma and resistance. Um, these themes tend to come up in all your work. Um, you could argue that these are the dominant themes in, in, in your work. And I just wanted to kind of ask you a general question about the reasons for that. Is that is that a theme that, um, or are, do these themes fascinate you intellectually, or do they have to do with your, of course, with your personal experience uh, with oppression as a child? Is, is, is uh, your work a way of kind of working through these difficult experiences, those traumatic experiences, or is it more of an intellectual fascination with, with the interaction between resistance, oppression, trauma, and so on? So, Resistance and oppression were, I'm not sure I was aware of those words when I was living them as a child, with my father being a political dissident and in Romania, in communist Romania, and with my mother living with someone who was resisting communism as an idea, and specifically the communist government at the time, the Ceausescu regime. But um, I would say that everything started with personal experience as a child, and these concepts were not developed intellectually until very recently, the last 20 years, after I've learned English and I started writing the family stories and writing about the memories. I would say that I would, the actual experience of um, waiting in lines for bread, of waiting with my father um, to listen to Radio Free Europe, uh, with my mother saying, you know, to us, don't say anything that you don't like because the kids at school might say something and then there is, you know, walls have ears and all of this, the sense of being under surveillance and under self-censorship developed very early, developed from, you know, from school, from early school. So having lived those, to be able to put a name on it, I would call it sort of experiential learning. Um, Later on, I started wondering what makes people behave the way they do. And how do we see our lives in 
as, as individuals in the rest of the world. So the, the immigration to the United States has brought this to the forefront of my mind, as it were, whereas they were lodged in a daily experience. Something like oppression, you feel it physically when it's cold inside the house and there's no coal or there's no wood to, to heat up the house. When you're trading chickens for eggs and flour for, for these things. So that was easy to talk about and to feel. How do you put a name on that? And how do you understand your life after uh, when, you know, when things are fine? Then that, that has become um, a, a huge interest for me. And so I've been trying to understand, first of all, with my father was the curiosity about how he survived all these years of prison without being mad, without developing some kind of mental illness or some kind of addiction to alcohol or some kind of violent behavior. How do, pe how do people not crack? I'm always fascinated with that. So, you know, anytime I meet somebody who's been through a lot and, and, and looks like a very happy human being and very wise human being, I'm fascinated with, you know, how do you do that? Because it's hard. You know, most people crack under, under pressure. Um, so now it has become a, a, the connection that I'm making now intellectually is with language. What words do we tell ourselves? How do we present ourselves to ourselves in language? in order to survive certain things, but not just to survive, but to really belong in a world, in a sense of well-being in a world. This is what I'm after. Okay, all right, thanks, that's fascinating. There's, there's one uh, follow-up question, well, there, there, there are a few potential follow-up questions, but there's one um, uh, that's related to what you said about your father about cracking under pressure, and he was in prison several times, and under uh, extreme duress and, and, and physical torture and so on. How do you think he built up resilience? I mean, resilience is a notion that we, we've been using a lot and academics started to kind of use it more and more often uh, in place of or instead of uh, resistance. It's like individual mundane strategies to build up resilience in the face of oppression or difficulties in life, not necessarily the political uh, oppression. How do, how, how do you think he managed to find that resilience in that specific context? Well, I've asked him directly um, how he did it. And funnily enough, he said, you know, the intellectuals were the ones who died first in prisons, either by suicide or they, they caved because they were too aware of what was taken away from them. That um, hyper-awareness of the thinker can be self-destructive after a while. I mean, it, it, it helps people to contextualize. But he said at some point he had to stop and he said it had to be a very simple, stubborn act of saying, you are not going to kill me. And so I understand your games and so I'm going to stop. So he said, you know, you, you close yourself off to certain thinking. This is what he was saying to me. Um, I mean, my father grew up very poor. Uh, he, he was born in uh, 1935, and so was a young child going through, through the war experience in Romania, 
being hungry and following his grandmother, sort of one of his memories. Well, the memory of my grandmother that she kept talking about till we left Romania was of my father with the shoes slung over his shoulders, you know, running barefoot after her and then fighting for the loaf of bread, you know, eating all the corners on the way home and then not much bread left for the other kids at home. And he remembered similar things, you know, um, and then go, going away from home when he was quite young and trying to make his sense in the world, that gave him enough exposure to people to try to understand people. And he was always saying, you know, you have to listen more and try to understand more and talk less because you need to give people space to express themselves to understand what, what they're after. But resistance in a sense of always being um, aware that somebody can be hurtful as well as uh, have a goodwill. And, and, and I think that to, to him was key, his sense of people, understanding people very quickly, watch out for these people, these people are okay. And it was instinctual. Okay, wow, that's fascinating. And what does uh, resistance mean to you then? And, and did your conception of resistance or whatever notion you'd like to use, whatever cognate concept you'd like to use, um, has your perception of, of resistance and its synonyms uh, changed over time? And how do you reflect on those in your births? Questions, I'm sorry. Mm. So when when I was a child, then I had the, you know the first interrogations when my father was arrested. I was a very strong child. Very everything was wonderful about our lives. Even though we not we saw things, we had enough food from my grandparents. We had enough enough love from my parents. We had our vacations in the Black Sea. Our vacations in the mountains. My parents had the same. My mom had the same teacher I had. In, so there was a sense of community, a sense of balance. No, I knew my place in the world. So it was very hard to push me over as a child, even by the, uh, by the interrogators and even by the fact that everything fell apart very quickly. Yet at the same time, those, uh, those years have marked me quite a bit. You know, that, that sense that it's, the world is not as stable as you think it is. It's kind of like seeing your parent pu pushed over and falling. You know, first time when, you know, I saw my father with chains around his wrist and shaved, that, that's when my world fell apart. And then the figure of my father that I had in my head, the protector, the strong, the one who fixed everybody's cars and, you know, gave everyone, you know, glasses of wine on the way to the cemetery because our house was on the way to the cemetery. That and everybody who, you know, he always wore his suit and his hat and, you know, from Mr. Bogan, he was a convict and somebody who was against the society in a sense. That was, that was devastating in so, in so many levels. So... That has changed, that, how did I decide, then I decided to be, I think it was instinctual. I, I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't make a more flowery or, you know, or more intellectual or more sophisticated than what it really was. It was in instinctual, I had to say, but who are you to take over me? Who are you to take over my life? It was a, a, an act of sort of not giving permission to other people to, to push us over. 
And so simple act, very instinctual, very simple act. Now it's easier to talk about it because I have the emotional space and I have the, the willingness of people to talk about more. There was, at that time there was also the very close the society. You couldn't talk about anything. And so now it's, now it's easier to sort of talk and philosophize about it as, it were, as my father would say. But uh, has it developed? Yes, I think that experience generated a whole life of wondering how we are strong. How, where do we get the strength from every day? And I'm going through that with my children now, you know, trying to teach them how to be strong now. Um, the COVID pandemic definitely taught us some lessons too, that everything seemed so wonderful and here we are. I think that's, that's a big question to ask about resilience and you know, who survives unscathed after an experience like that, which, which was global. I'm not sure if I answered, I've been, um, I'm not sure if I answered any of the questions that you asked but me, I but there were some other... We'll come back to that anyway when, when we talk about your work in more detail. Yes. So I think that's a running theme in your work anyway, so I'll probably ask more specific questions along the way. Um, Thank you so much. Well, I suppose, Carmen, there was a couple of things you said there that I wanted to pick up on with um, specific reference to... Um, how you approach your writing in poetry and memoir and criticism, and also some of the principles that you discuss, particularly in poetry in the language of oppression. Um, because you talk very interestingly in that book about the idea of trust. And so you were just explaining to us, um, obviously, how those profound experiences of childhood and adolescence marked you for life. And you talk here, I think, very brilliantly about um, how that totally disrupted any sense of trust that you could have in, in people, as you say, in, in, in your sense of the world, in, um, you know, in, in, a kind of, in your kind of confidence in the stability of the world. But you then relate that here in the book to language and to how a poet needs to feel that they can trust language. Um, so I wonder um, if you might say a bit more about that sense of trust, trust as a person, as a citizen, and trust as a poet and somebody who, who works with language but who's aware of how language can be um, manipulated and deployed um, and used as an instrument of power and control. Yeah, I mean, so then, again, the, the sense to be a poet, I think, one needs to have the confidence that the language nourishes mm -hmm. and also one has something to contribute to the language, to nourish the language. Um, and I've been drawing strength from language from early on. When my father was in prison, I was writing poems to, to him, and so that was part of the initial trust in language. And then there was a destabilizing period. Um, and then what I realized later on, and as I was working through the ideas in poetry and the language of oppression, is really narrowing into this concept of language within language. And it's something that I talked yesterday in a workshop a little bit. Um, what is the language of poetry specifically and what can the language of poetry do? And now I'm going to say what can literary language do that other language that we speak, the everyday language, so we're talking about registers of language and different ways we use language. Um, 
and how can it stand with at times and at the other times when necessary against the language of um, the politician and the predominant uh, sort of more damaging languages of culture which in these days the cult of of celebrity and the marketing language they're extremely manipulative and they're they're drawing people from the very early age so what can, what does that that's what i'm interested in probably for the rest of my life i would want to study by looking at specific poets and poems what does the poetic language do that other kinds of languages don't do to protect us against different kinds of invasions in language that we experience day to day, that were manipulated by, and, and were um, pushed um, into, and were pushed, I think, against our values and against the, the, the sort of the cardinal virtues that we are meant to have. You know, the trust, the, the, the faith, the goodwill that we have, the, these things are very important, I think. And so, I'm constantly on a look for poems that give us something that is both very specific, very direct, very personal, and at the same time can be spoken for many different cultures and many different people. So how do we narrow onto the common humanity that we do? But we do know that the common humanity is really the domain of the politician's language because that's how we are being convinced to subscribe to certain political ideas and to certain cultural norms. Yeah. And so this is what I'm working on. So uh, again, I have a very special relationship with the English language. Yeah. It saved me, but then again, it isn't the language where I could fully express myself, especially formally in poetry. You know, And I think that when we were talking yesterday about the difficulties of expressing myself formally within, in traditional forms in poetry, I run into the, the, the poet's primary question, which is, do I find the words to pour into the form of the sonnet? For the sonnet to sound good, do, do I find, so the, the words, the, the ideas, the things that I, <laughs> are they becoming simply something that is the second, uh, to second importance and the form is? Where is it the, actual subject, the concerns, the heart of the poem, do I strive to find a form for that? And the balance between the two of them. This is very difficult to achieve, I believe, for somebody who's, um, who writes in a, in a language that is non-native, especially after the age of 19 when I was fully formed emotionally by the Romanian language. Yes. And so, to your point about resistance, the question I've been asking myself is, do I resist oppression by, re by refusing my native language? Is that a form of resistance? Is it, does resistance entail rejection? And how far does one go? Before one becomes aware that one cuts a part of themselves away. So that's, that's one. Now we live in a, in a world where everybody writes in second, third language, where everybody's in, in it's hard to know where the commitment to language is. So this is why I said, you know, with language, with English, there's the poetry is a language within language. I think literature is language within language. But then 
another question I'm asking, how much pressure do we put on this creative language, which is meant to create specifically these characters who are heroes, who are villains, who represent certain traits of behavior and, and certain cultural ideas. How much pressure do we put it, do we put before we're starting to turn the, the literary language into a politicized language? This is very scary. That, that is, you know, we want to be free, we want to imagine, we want to imagine a better life, to write ourselves free, as I was saying yesterday. Um, but then there is the pressure of also telling the truth and making sure that the person sitting next to us is not hurt because of something that we said out of um, stupidity, out of ignorance, uh, out of, uh, you know, being mean to other people, prejudices, ingrained prejudices from before. There are many reasons for which we might be saying the wrong things. So it's very difficult, I think. And the academic world seems to be struggling very much with uh, funding and pressures and, and objectives and definitions and creating concepts on, on how something should work. So my way of approaching this is going from experience that is lived to the words rather than starting from the top down, from the words mm -hmm. where we're trying to sort of find the right word to fit the experience. It's, I'm almost sort of looking from words from the experience up, is how do I define what I feel? I, that's what the poet does, actually. Yeah. How do you define what's going on in your head and what you feel? That's that's so fascinating, and I, I suppose I'm always very struck by like because you're very clear in this book, um, poetry in the language of oppression, on the relationship between literature and politics, and when, as you say, it can become problematic when it kind of when literature is compromised or when literature is somehow diminished, um, and you have a very striking phrase where you say my work parks for independence, and I was I was very struck by that, and I suppose as you define there the identity and the role of the poet, one thing I wonder is, you know, as, as, as we've said, you are somebody who works in different genres, so you write literary criticism, um, journalism, reviews, memoir, and also poetry, but do you feel that in all those different genres you are always writing as a poet, or do you feel that a different identity kind of kicks in when you're writing in different prose forms? I think I'm just looking for different different registers of language to say the same thing. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I could say in, in my worst moments and most insecure moments as a, as a writer, I think that I'm just repeating myself in different forms. On the other hand, when I feel better <laughs> about what I do, I think that I'm making an effort to understand by using different languages to understand these concepts a bit more um, clearly. So for example, the, the book reviews, I'm always admiring people who are doing something I think should be done, where I think addresses certain things in a very honest way and in a direct way, so I'm drawn to praise the, that work, to say it illuminates some, some aspect of our experience, so I'm going to, to review this book. When I, um, when I write the essays, is I'm attempting very hard to think through and bring some of the tradition that is familiar to me to help me along to think about these things, and it's a more thinking, 
I suppose, more rigorous process as it was with the book on Haney and East Europeans, um, the, the more academic work, and with the poetry is simply letting, letting the language breathe out its own um, rhythms, its own intonations, its own... Uh, there are moments when you just simply want the joy of a beautiful phrase. Mm -hmm. And it's th that joy shouldn't be denied simply because we're working in this very tight context of expectations of language for the political reasons that, that are always around. I mean, it's, you know, I also said somewhere that it's no longer tenable for the writer to sit on the side and sort of look at everything and say, well, that's a circus and, you know, that's below me somehow because I am a writer and I'm not, no, everything is political. Everything is political. Is the, the question is how much of that language can we clean it up? And you know, even the word politics itself um, sh could be reformulated or re uh, we breathe new life into what to really means how we allocate things mm -hmm. to people, mm -hmm. to really mean something that can draw more of us towards it mm -hmm. rather than most of us away from it. Uh, that's that's a sense of uh, reformulating. So, um, Cecilia de Aconessa, who was a spy who uh, was hired to talk about my mother when she was in the hospital under arrest with my little brother, who was just a few weeks old. This is 1983. She fascinated me as a character. And the question I had was what would I have done in her case? Would ha She had to bring her own child, a healthy child, into an infectious ward, have that child in the same cut with my brother, just so she could put my mother to prison, getting her to confess about her uh, alignment, I suppose, with my father's ideas and, and how she supported him for, for his um, descent. And so it was really when I found the material in the archives that confirmed what my mother was saying. So that's the work of the journalist, right? In trying to understand how does it work? How does the machinery of oppression work? Okay, let's go to the archives and find out if this woman has a dossier. She does. Mm -hmm. What did she write about my mother? Well, I read that. Beautiful handwriting, by the way. Uh, very elegant, very beautiful, very orderly. I was stuck. So I was looking at the handwriting thinking she must have had a very orderly mind to do such a disorderly thing. Mm -hmm. it's, there's a sort of conformity. So I was struggling to understand when I started writing the novel. First it was in prose and then I decided to make it in verse and it's still not finished. I was, I was really struggling to understand her that sense of conformity and whether she did it because she aligned perfectly with the expectations from her because they were part of the way she saw the world. Mm -hmm. That communism is good, people who dissent are bad, they're not seeing the value, uh, the value of, of, of this government and therefore we should eliminate them mm -hmm. as impurities. And we, so I tried to create her character based on that then I went against myself, and then I thought, no, it's much more complicated. She must have had to do something out of pressure, too. 
And then I went around to everybody who sort of confessed to us that they were informers, even as part of friends and family, and they said I had to do it, and I looked at their motives. So I put, in developing her characters, I put some of those real stories behind, you know, people, you know, if you inform, you will get certain benefits. If you don't, you'll get certain punishments. But then if they framed it, we inform to protect you. So in other words, we're not saying dangerous stuff about you. So might as well, I do my job and, and you're safe. So there is a sort of moral equilibration, right? They, they, they equalize morally their actions. So that's what I've done with her trying to understand. This is a novel based on a real spy. What is the literary value? I've been asking myself, what is the literary value of this? Because you could look at it and say, well, you're, you're lying of it, it's fiction. You made up a character. Well, you could look at it, but it's from real life. You, you brought in how way people behave. And then somebody can stand in the middle saying, well, you manipulated everything to make this great character. So you could sell a book. So now we're in a marketing territory. All these questions come into, into, into the mind, right, when, when I'm working on this. So I've decided she has to be a character based on that kind of behavior that would show how one could or might balance the expectations from the society, the private expectations, um, and the need for survival. So th these things. But it's difficult to work into this because, again, I think the... I don't know how other writers, if you've interviewed other writers who deal with this um, history, politics, and the creativity on the other side, how they negotiate this, because it's very difficult uh, to... There is, there's only one truth. Mm -hmm. There's only one 1989 revolution in Romania. Now, <laughs> there are many people who saw that revolution from outside Romania and from inside Romania, and everybody has a different story. And when the writer comes between the historian and the politician to tell the story to the people, because one doesn't write only for the self, if I have the ambition to public that I want people to read it, mm -hmm. there's a lot of responsibility there to stay true to what is actual and factual, but to also the mind to stay very clear on what the consequences are, so we don't start creating monsters out of people. Mm. So, so interesting. And there are questions I'd, I'd love to come back to there, um, particularly about the, you know, your, your engagement with the archive and your work as a reader of the archive and, and memory and autobiography. But I suppose I think I'll hand over to, to Balash there. But just to say, I think you, you have raised where well, you've kind of taken us to an interface, which is absolutely essential for the literature and resistance series, which is that question, as you say, of, of the <coughs> of the negotiation. And the tensions and the compromises and the risks of bringing, you know, of bringing re-experience into, into the domain of the literary. And I'm thinking of Shane Seney, who, of course, you think about a great deal, and who's very important to you. And that question he asks in the poem "Known World: and How Does the Real Get Into the Made Up?" Ask me an easier one, he says. Um, so That's right. I think there's, uh, yeah, it, it, it's, it's an essential question really for, for what we're doing here. But. Um, I'll hand over to, to Balash for... Yeah, I'm still formulating a question in my head and, um, on the basis of what you've just said. And I had a question before, but mm -hmm. such an, an, an interesting discussion uh, for about, about the relationship of, of language, um, uh, the political use of language um, and the literary aesthetic use of language and, and how you perceive uh, the role of language um, and 
basically use of language and literature and poetry as an act of resistance to to communication being dominated by by political language, if if I, if I understood that well, uh, and it's so fascinating, but it, because it kind of, I guess the conclusion one could jump to after that is essential claiming that literature, poetry, is an act of resistance in itself by you know by virtue of its continuing permanent am ambition to create new and unique forms of expression um, that are not in line with. Kind of dominant communication on panels, be it in marketing or, or, or political language. So I just wanted, wanted you to kind of come back to that point of literature and resistance and see what you think. And, and the other point I, that, uh, that struck me right, while you were discussing um, uh, you know, this, this topic and, and um, the new novel as well is, um, uh, is what scholars usually argue about communism and, and how uh, very broadly speaking, at how uh, kind of communist meta narrative in within the communist uh, meta the master narrative, the boundary between political language and fiction blurred, and it was very difficult to. I mean, that's official literature, obviously not not dissenting uh, literature, but there was a blurring of the boundaries and and uh, between politics and, and aesthetics and literature and, and so on. And I just wanted to ask you if if your work um, could be kind of considered as a way to respond to that uh, as a way to kind of try to disentangle that blur between literature and, and, and politics in, in some way? Does that make any sense? It makes a lot of sense and then I, I want to return to, 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 to two things here. Uh, first of all, when I, when I teach creative writing, I tell people, you know, I often give them these exercises, tell me your first memory. And go as far as you can, as far as you can, as far as you can. And then we have a writing exercise and they say, and then, you know, I'm telling them, you know, in this course, you are creating new language. That's what it is, creative writing. We're creating new language. It's humbling to take an experience and to create new language around it and then to sort of put that into something beautiful that it can be an offering to the reader. In, in the best spirit, I believe, literature is an offering to the reader. I took it as such when I was a kid and I've enjoyed reading everything that I've been reading. And when I write, it's, I write it in the same spirit I bake my bread at home for my kids. Really, it's that sense. And that I never want to lose sight of it. And that also comes from being a kid in a countryside, you know, having to bake my own bread. That's where the independence comes from, too. That if nobody gives me that language, and I'm not really so entitled to think that somebody has to give me a language that frees me, or that makes me feel happy, I have to make it. So there is that sense of being independent from there, you know. Um, but to answer your, your question, yes, I'm trying to disentangle what is and what can be construed as political or dominant discourse from what gives us our unique experience and our unique partaking in language. I, you know, I do think of language of something, there are different ways in which I think of language and I talk to, you know, books, there are different ways that I talk about it. And also because I'm trying to understand this, the, making these analogies is, is, is a lot of fun to do it. You know, sometimes I think, you know, language is like a tapestry, right? But it's a tapestry that we all weave and in the end we all get to sit on the same carpet. 
and then what I put the strengths that I bring in and the strengths that you bring in and the, and and it's democratic in a sense that I I love to say this when I give poetry readings you know but I have a right upon the language just as you do I mean fortunately <laughs> fortunately that's something nobody can take away from us it doesn't matter how much you oppress people and they have to censor if you share the same national language that in a sense nobody can take the words away from anybody you know, they, they could, so we will, people, it's like, it's again another analogy. Language is like water, you know, it encounters a rock, you know, as it, as it flows out towards the sea, it goes around it or over it. But it is, it has that power to it. So that's the sense of freedom that I get from there. But in terms of what flows into that language from everybody else, or what everybody weaves into that carpet, that's not something that I can control, but it's something that I can understand. A little bit. Um, the question is how do we reach harmony or how do we reach that sort of ability to use the same water in a way that is not toxic in the same way that is so yeah resistance what is resistance you know nobody asked me this question before so I'm stumped uh, to answer it what is resistance is sort of it's I think Shane Wasini said know thyself in, in, in different places, that, you, that the idea that you know yourself. And that's again, it's a big one, but you know yourself, you never know yourself by yourself. You always know yourself as belonging to some community, as belonging to the world in some role. I know myself as a mother. Lately it's been, and I think this is another significant change in my work, the idea of being a woman and a mother and resisting, going back to resistant, re resisting the expectations placed on me to behave a certain way. Um, and I'm coping with a lot of that now, especially after the pandemic. And so how do I do that? Because the stereotypes of women, not to diverge, but then again, this is something very political is constructed by society and is construed in such a way by many of us as to limit ourselves as women. There is a lot of self-limitation and there isn't, you know, I must be one of the very few people who takes her kids on international talks and, and sort of say we come in three. And that's, uh, that's something that I'm, <laughs> I'm hoping that more people would do to make space for their families to be more part. I think what we're missing here is the integration between the self and society in different roles that we play. And then I'm not saying merging and melting everything together like a big pot of spaghetti that you bring with your kids, but then that sense of whatever I say here has to influence their lives. And whatever I say to them has to be true enough that can carry some weight here. The, I say in my creative writing classes, I say the world within and, and in my poems m must meet the world without. And that means a lot of disentangling of, of what can come up from somebody who just sits in an office and makes up an idea that this is how the society should work. But then I wanted to say something else, and that was about the power of language that you brought it to my mind, was Stalin said, you know, the writers are the engineers of the human soul. All right. I agree with that. Isn't that what we're saying here? I mean, so you, you know, you go back to the legislators, 
the unacknowledged legislators of the world. Okay, we're not very far, I think, if we're saying this, but they expect, do you see that phrase? Those phrases are so important. Well, you could justify oppression with both of them. All you need to do is to put good writers who can really play the game of putting the, the right imagery to make the message more powerful. And this is where I become so uncomfortable. And that takes you to George Orwell and Politics in the English Language, an essay that you talk Fair, about. Yes, yeah, yeah. that takes me, and that's an essay that I teach in every class that I teach. Yeah. Because that has to do with how vague the language is, mm -hmm. with what we expect from language. Yeah. Um, and what is our responsibility for the language, which is sort of not to use words that link the paragraphs together, but rather to, <laughs> to f how do we find the new language, and is there a new language? Mm -hmm. So he talks about, that essay is, is, is one of them. The, the ability, so what, you know, the writers are the engineers of the human soul. You can say this if you have a big ego and if you're a writer and if you want the big grant and a big professorship at a university, right? You say, oh, we're so important. Most of the time, most of the poets say because and I'm not going to speak for everybody, but I'm going to speak for almost everybody. <laughs> they feel poets, feel, we feel unacknowledged, right? Most of the time, sort of, it's kind of useless stuff. You just sit around and talk about your feelings while you want a job now. You want to be paid for it. Isn't, it's, so it's not, it's not a serious job. It's, so that's why people say, well, no, 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 we are the legislators, the unacknowledged legislators of the world. So trying to... It's a very political act. Carve space for ourselves in a network of power, right? Isn't that what it is? So these, these, how do we, <laughs> how do we tangle them? How do we disentangle them? Um, it's impossible. It's impossible. There was Donald Trump who said, "Make America great again." How can I disagree with that? It, 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 the phrase brings some kind of nostalgia again. Ooh, once it was great, right? Make, make America, that's a good verb, so make it, create something, give a name to the place, America, and again, so it's, it's this sort of hopeful, it's all of this, and then you look at the f figure of Trump there, and then you have migraines for the rest of your life, you know, how could you, how could you, no, this is where I stopped reading the news. Um, so that's difficult to, so, can poetry deal with this? I think it can, I think it can, because it invites us, if we look at poetry as an offering, it only offers that loaf of bread, it only offers that, and you can partake if you want, and if you're not hungry, well, you don't have to take it. Um, and then you might like it, you might not like it, it might nourish you, it will nourish you if you eat it for sure. Um, so there is that sense of if, if the spirit is one of an offering of language, I believe that, we, that more people will sit at the table and, and would at least want to listen in. And that would help us disentangle because that's where those certain phrases can be um, looked at critically with the eyes of the critic can look at it, can be looked at with, with the eyes of the poet and of the reader. There's no poet without a reader. That's another thing too, which is very humbling. There is no literature without a reader. That's, that's it. There is a, no one writes 
for themselves because no one knows about the books that are written and never published. I mean, I suppose just thinking of you as a reader, um, like one of the extraordinary things about your work is that it is in dialogue with this vast record of your family's life, so the, se the Securitate files, 4,500 pages, is that correct? And you, you've been engaging with those for 20 years or, 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 or more at this stage, is that...? Since 2010. To 2010, okay. So you have this... Um, I mean, I think this comes up because, you know, that, that's one of the languages that you, you seem to be fighting against and, and your work gives us um, extracts from those files. We have a sense of the just appalling, like, invasion and, and kind of corruption of intimacy that those files represent. You talk about how they give your family access to things that in a normal life would be forgotten, but which are there. And then you have this sense of the people who were observing you and how well they got to know you. So I suppose connected with these points about, about language and resistance maybe is also the question of memory and narrative and how you, and how you work against and sometimes how you work along with um, those, um, those documents, which are now in an archive but which, in a sense, are very vivid and present still because they're giving back to you, you know, a life that you did live. Um, uh, yeah, is, is, there, is, is there more we could explore there? Yeah, so, I mean, that's another language within language, mm. and that is precisely the language of oppression that, the, in the way I defined it mm. in my book. And I wanted to be very um, specific about the language of oppression because, again, language of oppression is as wide as language of freedom. Anything can be about oppression, anything can be about freedom. So I defined the language of oppression on those files, with those files. Those files sort of target the objects of observation, so they almost dehumanize people to make them these targets, where these, these moving things, that they are to be explored. And they have a mixture of reality and, and sincerity about them, the, the daily life, but also the way they framed the reasons for which they followed us. Those are lies. I mean, I never spoke to Radio Free Europe, and my mother never spoke to spies. Therefore, there was no reason for them to instate a whole surveillance apparatus around us enlisting my high school friends. Or my 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 elementary school friends when my father was. I was just talking to Aurelia, a friend of mine, when we went to Romania about her interrogations uh, when she was young, and and she explained this is why I stopped talking to you because I was afraid to talk to you. And so that is a language within language too, and it has been crafted. If um, have you read Anna Funder's Stasi Land? Where, so Anna Funder uh, is an Australian writer who uh, was fascinated with German history and has gone to Berlin shortly after the fall of the Berlin Wall and interviewed both victims and oppressors in the, the Stasis who, and gave um, a good exposure to everyone in a sense of uh, the world had access to see what was in the mind of the man who uh, sort of in 1961 drew the actual border of the Berlin Wall and talks about him with him about his father and about the, the, their role and about the transformation overnight uh, 
how people threw themselves from the tenements from the eastern side when they're caught into the western side and how they couldn't come back. So she has this idea, this explanation of the language and she talks about the universities where people were trained into interrogation techniques. The, uh, they were trained to ask specific questions and to elicit certain responses and to dominate people in a conversation. And uh, so that is a language within language. Now, where do I come into that in terms of my books? I believe that if it stays in the archives in Romania, it's only going to be used for historical purposes and it will be forgotten. I mean, you know, it will be part of a museum at some point. But bringing it into transforming it into poetry as I did in uh, releasing the porcelain birds. I took the files and I made them talk to one of my poems as a response to them. Or putting them into bearing the typewriter to justify that what I was telling there is true. <laughs> it's, it really happened what my father did. Here are the pictures of the buried typewriter. Here's what he's done. It's not something that I made up. That was the reason that I put it in there to sort of give credibility to it. But it also to verify memory also, because there were days that I got wrong in a book and events that they were not completely matched to the date. So the files sort of corrected some of that. And then in poetry and language of oppression to really detangle the poetry, the, the poetry and to see how the poetic language can act upon the files in order to frame them. Why do I want to do that? I want to do that because I want to show how these two different languages do different things. And the only way we could have this conversation now and is if I put them in there and other people can read them without the need to study history, Cold War history, and without the need to travel to Bucharest or to Berlin or to other places to get access to the files. So in a sense, I'm seeing my work, and I'm going to sound very arrogant now, as an attempt to empower people to know what happened. Because I believe that's an act of empowerment more than anything else. So if people read some of these files and say, well, this is how I feel about it, this is what, what the files say, look at this language, I think people would be more um, curious and more questioning of the language that comes every day from everywhere else and, and sort of try to formulate it in their mind. What kind of language is this coming at me? Is a part of, of a particular register of language and what is the purpose? Not to make everybody suspicious, but to make everybody aware and also enjoy language for all of its possibilities. This, this might be a, um, historical nerdy question about, about language re registers, but, um, um, and again, this is a historian in me, but um, the, the reports usually mirror the official language of, of, of the state in communism, but at the same time, in my experience at least, um, the language register tends to change um, as the reports go higher up. Yeah. So the reports that were, were written probably on the ground in your village by, by whoever was writing those or, or, or uh, collecting those reports, I'm assuming that they were a lot cruder uh, or, or probably uh, the, the, the sentences were, were, were phrased and framed more simplistically than the reports that were collected uh, at the top or, or in, in the centre in Bucharest. And so 
I'm assuming there was kind of a transition from kind of a simplistic, cruder re language register to a slightly more sophisticated um, language used by the center. Is, 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 there, is yeah. this just an assumption? Or no, no, it's, you're absolutely correct. So, the, so because it depend on, it depended on who wrote the, the reports. Mm -hmm. So th there are two things here. So one, you know, uh, for example, somebody who was a, a for, for, forester, for somebody who worked in a forest to bring wood, one of the family friends, you know, I would read his scrawled notes that I went and I had the microphones inside my coat and I planted a microphone over there and I listened to this. So because a lot of these people were also under surveillance to make sure that they were doing the job of surveillance. So there was double. So if I enlisted you as an informer, I wouldn't just trust you. I would spy on you anyway. To make sure. To make sure that you're doing your job. And so, you know, and so those were a lot of scrolls, a lot of things that were written. People who found the, the manifestos against the communism, that my father wrote at his typewriter in their mailboxes, wrote these very scared letters. You could really see on a handwriting this, I'm reporting this, I found that it wasn't me, I didn't write it, I bring it to you, please catch the criminal kind of thing. Uh, so those were different uh, from the people who were already professionally hired, they were part of the sort of machinery of the, uh, the observation, and they were not civilians, and then those took and specifically to your point, they rephrased. One example that I found and I wrote about in uh, releasing the porcelain birds is the letters that we got from my father from prison, the postcards. Some of them I found them the, the actual ones that were written by him. But most of them, they were transcribed by the secret police and rephrased by them. I, I read them and I felt like I was being skinned. Do you know? What I mean, it's it's it's, it's physical. The, the oppression is physical. For me to think you didn't even leave my father's postcards because for us they were holy. There was like one a year. You, you had to rephrase them and say that this is, and then also with, with the comments, you know, he, you know, he was sad because the wife wasn't there. And, and Carmen was about me. Carmen was sad because her father wasn't there for the exams. And, and she wrote this and then a quote. <laughs> um, so that's a second layer. They were filtered and they were filtered for the information they wanted. Um, that specifically to what you were asking there, and then those in turn were filtered. And then there was, of course, what was coming from the top down with the orders uh, to uh, survey the family and my father in prison, the, the other inmates to ask him certain questions and to instigate certain conversations. Those had a very technical language. Uh, that was a different language altogether, the, the directive language for the surveillance. Whether those from the bottom up who were in a village were people saying, what time did you see so-and-so going to the train station? And what were they doing? What were they wearing? Oh, and what did she say about her husband? And then those were uh, the other narratives. So those are the primary material, if, if you wish. The other ones were... Um, 
well, kind of like we have, you know, we do criticism about a poem and then we interpret and then we say, therefore, this is what the poem is about. This pretty much, this is, this was a level of it. And they were, they were very clever in a lot of ways because they were getting the psychological nuances. Some of them, you know, I, I like to refer to them as imbeciles and as stupid people, but really, no, it's just being angry from my side because there was that sense of, there is also this portrait of the informer you know, being a brute and being, well, I'm not sure. They were well read, they read a lot, they were really well trained to, to read the subtext and for that they were much more dangerous. So there was a, the specific kind of education. Some of them were brutes, yes, and many of them were maybe psychologically because they had no moral compass. But it's not true to say that these people didn't know what they were doing because they have controlled a whole part of the world for a long time. So that kind of success is not really, you cannot replicate it without a certain amount of, of, of knowledge and sophistication. Mm. So does that mean that the language of oppression is, is in a permanent flux in general and it's being constructed at multiple levels yes. by a whole range of individuals? So it's not as monolithic as we'd like to think, but it's the individuals have a, a small amount of agency to, to form and shape. Yes, I believe that it is in flux as all the languages. As a, and, and it's in flux with the time, with the cultures, with the generation, with the psychology of the speaker. I believe that is in flux with the time at which one speaker speaks, with how that speaker is changed by certain experiences. We constantly assess and reassess our behavior, our values, uh, the way we think about stuff. Uh, one of the most interesting things that I was studying with my students last term, we were reading, rereading, this is going back a bit, but it's really on a point, believe me on this one, the Confession of St. Augustine we we're talking about, and how he looked at his pear-stealing episode much later in life, in his 30s, he was looking as a sin. And then he didn't think really it was a sin when he was doing it, but then he remembered that the only reason he could qualify that as a sin, well, the only reason that the primary reason he qualified is because he knew he could do it. But it's clear that at the age of 16, he didn't reflect on that. This is only the reflection of the sophisticated man who became a convert to Christianity later on and wrote a book about to tell the story. And in that sense, he changes the pear-stealing episode. It, it, it fundamentally changes from a boy with his friends stealing pears and throwing them. And I was telling my students, well, you know how many cherries I stole and how many branches of cherries I stole? And, you know, how we ate until our stomachs hurt and how many people we annoyed and how many lilacs I stole. I mean, I didn't think I was committing a sin and I don't think now that I committed a sin. But then it takes that sophistication and that reflection. And I think that's an example of language and memory changing the character of the experience with reflection. And so, you know, again, that the act of memory and reflection is very important to sort of telling the life. I chose to write bearing the typewriter precisely for this reason, growing up from the innocence of the child growing up because I didn't want to turn into somebody who would reflect and invest the experience with more meaning that it had at the time or with more knowledge that I had at the time. So I tried 
you know, the very best that I could to, to, to have the kid growing up there um, in that book. So I would say that the language of oppression changes. I think we're much, much more sophisticated oppressors now with the technology, with the cellular phones, with the marketing, with posing the surveillance as a commodity, as a, give me your location because you can find your way back to your hotel, but then in reality, you know, if my husband was jealous, I'm saying that, and wanted to take my phone, then they would see it. So you go from, I, that was a bad thing but to, to, to mention because that's not, not, none of that is happening. But the, the, what I'm trying to say is that there is a way of precisely locating a person, knowing what a person buys, knowing what a person likes. You know, I am looking for a kind of yogurt uh, in a store. I pay for it, then it shows up on my phone as, would you like to buy more of that? Mm -hmm. um, again, that's taking it a bit of, a, of context here, but to say that the language of oppression is in flux constantly, I would, I would say it's true from my experience. When we look at oppression in a family, divorcing families, abuse in a family, the oppressor creates his or her own language to fit the purpose of the time and of the people who are the target of that oppression, right? The oppression creates a certain behavior, a certain language to be part of that. Um, and the same with the great uh, revolutions and political systems and, and all of this. They are replayed and so each language is specific and is constantly in flux. I, I wouldn't believe that somebody who never had access to a phone or somebody who never were, you know, if you're going back to medieval times or if you're going back to, you know, ancient times, oppression existed all along. And it becomes different with, with the culture and times. So are there mechanisms, is there a mechanism of oppression that we can learn to recognize and we learn to fix as if we would diagnose an illness? And, and fix it. I think, yes, too, there are certain elements of making somebody feel less than what they are, not granting them the, the freedom to express themselves, uh, constant lying, these are, all, these are all part of it, and I think we could all recognize now. And you said you have this kind of a sense of, a sense of purpose or a sense of obligation to examine this the kind of psych psychology of, of why somebody would be complicit in oppression, and then part of that you also suggest is is that we have to we have to think about how attractive resistors tend to be to us, but that, that perhaps you know through our through our being drawn to them we maybe neglect or we have we have paid less attention to the, the conditions that um, that those who, who as I say would be would be complicit in oppression. You know what's driving them, and we need to understand that as well as as well as to think about that, you know, what drives and motivates resistance. Yes, of course. So if you were looking at the story of Cecilia Diaconasa, or if you were looking at the story you were, you know, you were saying before the interview, how come we didn't have more writers in Romania resisting, or why do so many people? The question is very natural. Why did it happen in Romania the way it did? And why did so many people participate? 
um, as informers and why do so many people participate? Why did they let themselves be driven into starvation and into hating each other rather than sort of saying we don't like this government? Uh, what, what is So I believe that a, a, a bigger uh, job that there is that needs to be studied um, is precisely the social conditions. What is, a lot of it has to do with economics. What, you, what is it, uh, not just psychology, because people don't just get fed up language, that you don't, if you have beautiful poems about being free, you're not going to be any more free than if you didn't read those poems, and that if you, wasn't, you weren't delighted to those poems, at some point we got to feed people food. And I think a lot of it has to do, many people had a difficult time because there were not enough resources to go around. Anybody with a, with a full stomach and a, a safe place to send the children to school wouldn't really participate. They would say, I have nothing to do with it, I'm going to stay. At the same time, to complicate that a little bit, uh, our family was the first family to have a phone in a village, the first family to have a car, or were one of the first families to have a car in a village. And everybody asked themselves precisely these questions. Why did Bugan do it? He had everything he wanted, he had more than all of us. Why did he do it? And then the answer came, well, he had just enough so he could think. He wasn't so, that's a dangerous part, right? He wasn't so starved that he was constantly in lines for food. And he wasn't, because one thinking was during that time, people were oppressed because they were overworked so much and they were kept starving so much that they had no choice but to try to survive. They had no time to think about politics. That was one thinking that was at the time going in there. I'm not, I'm not sure if in your research you found that this was true in other countries, um, but this is the way we've, we've seen it then. Whereas people who had just a little bit of time and just enough food, they became dangerous because they started reading books, they started getting together, they started passing around ideas, they were listening more to the Western influences, to the propaganda against the communism, and then suddenly they came up with ways to resist um, the government at the time and the conditions at the time. So that's again, it's another, it's, it's another, I believe that these are things which need to be studied very, very carefully in order to understand at what point do you oppress somebody with certain um, economic conditions, with certain social conditions, uh, and with psychology, strictly with psychology, as is propaganda. The, the propaganda and also the intimidation, the language of intimidation. That was very hard. That was another thing. I am only looking at language but I know that a human being doesn't live just with language. I'm, I'm hyper aware of that. It's just I do not have the understanding or the knowledge, as I don't have the deeper understanding and the knowledge of history, which I need to get to understand more of the resources of the language that is being used to understand the context better. Uh, maybe just one last one uh, for me. Uh, there's one comment that you made at the very beginning um, 
that you, that that when you asked your father and and uh, how he built up resilience in, in prison, and he made a comment that that it was the intellectuals who crept first in uh, in prison, and uh, I've been thinking about that um, uh, since then, and, and it's such an interesting um, topic we could we could probably explore a little further because you know you intellectuals tend to be the ones writers, historians, uh, and so on, uh, academics. Who articulate agendas? They 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 have the concepts. Um, they they can outline alternative political pathways. Um, they can mobilize people through words and texts and, and images and so on and so on. But they are also the ones who who crack first. So there is this kind of paradoxical role of of intellectuals uh, and the context of of oppression that you know resistance tend to come. From them, I mean, articulated forms of resistance, not mundane acts of resistance. But at the same time, they are also the ones who crack and then, I guess, collaborate or or, or accommodate uh, at least uh, to the regime. I mean, how how do we um, how do we deal with this? How how can we um, as intellectuals build up resistance to oppression? Because I mean, if if what we deal with is, is the essential language, what you've been talking about and what you've been writing about. If language is taken away, if our ideas are taken, if our books are taken away, if our birds are taken away in prison, then we have nothing left and, and we crack. How do we build up resilience as intellectuals um, and the context in such a, such a context? I mean, it's, a, it's probably a rhetorical question, <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, because I mean, you're asking me a question that you know I I will spend the rest of my life trying to understand. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, no, no, this is I mean, and I think most of us would like to understand that. What that was really fascinating about my father about almost sort of the 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 physical fragility of the intellectual. I would say the physical that somebody couldn't cope with the physical. Um, uh, imprisonment because that had such a strong symbolic power on intellectual imprisonment that one is so you know as long as those people were not arrested they were extremely creative to speak above the censor they you know we, we know about the Asopian language spoken in a lot of the poetry at the time they were very cleverly but when they were physically taken away um, and I've been asking myself, if somebody were to physically take me and put me... I mean, I visited my father in prison. I think if somebody kept me there, or in a room where I had to wait to see him, it was a double room that it was double walls enclosed, where I had to wait for him for the first time I saw him all by myself. They kept me there for a while. And uh, the... This sense of physical, the, well, you can't breathe, right? You, what do they call this when it, um, suffocation. suffocation, people suffocate. They, they become very afraid of enclosed spaces. That's it. So I've been asking myself, if you take an intellectual who would have a very big mind, right? The stories of other people, the knowledge is vast usually in somebody who's, who's an intellectual can hold so much in their mind. There's, they're physically, probably that's, that's what breaks them. That whereas somebody who's used to a very hard life has a different psychological mechanism of defense. 
uh, it would be how do you build that I think you know we we get more intellectuals out a bit more into you know to contact with people who are m more um, live a basic life live in a in a sort of a basic life and they have to absorb more of their stories how did you live how did you survive this or how did you do this um, maybe that's that's one way of doing it but uh, yeah because the, the the question becomes as my father was saying my father was very upset about this because he was saying there's all this gray matter that disappeared that died it's you know all these people he said you know he's learned a lot and, and he talked very passionately about you know the doctors and the professors and people who knew so much and he learned so much from and he said you know they just vanished they just melted um under um i don't i really wish i could have an answer to how the only thing I can tell you now is that, you know, there's a this sort of this instinct that, you know, we do want to protect everybody who thinks because we do want to have those frameworks of thinking. But stories about people like my father are also important because they bring up the banality of resistance as we were talking before the interview, that to resist is something as um, natural and as common as breathing, it's just that we're not aware of it because we're not looking enough for it. I think we're looking for symbols. As a poet, I'm always looking for symbols and for interpretation, but I'm, I, the person standing in front of me, I don't, I don't really see for who they are. Thanks, that's a brilliant concluding line, that's I think. <laughs> amazing concluding line, yes. Thank you so much, Carmen, for an incredibly rich conversation opened up so many ideas for us on the series. Thank you so much, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.